Hello everyone and welcome back to season six of the Great Women Artists podcast. In this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the last year and a half. Alighieri Jewelry creates imperfect and fragmented modern heirlooms inspired by Dante Alighieri's journey from the darkness of Inferno to the lightness of Paradiso. I am very happy to tell you that Alighieri has just opened their first showroom in the heart of London's historic jewellery quarter, Hatton Garden. You can now step into the Alighieri universe and discover their talismans. Next Monday, the 15th of November, I will be hosting a talk in the new Alighieri showroom with my friend Eleanor Nairn, curator at the Barbican Art Centre in aid of Alighieri's charity partner, Refuge. Join us for a discussion on the women of abstract expressionism. From Lee Krasner, Joan Mitchell to Helen Frankenthaler, discover the lives and work of the women who paved the way in the post-war New York City and revolutionised painting forever. Tickets can be purchased on Alighieri.com with 100% of net profits going to Refuge. So I do hope to see some of you there. And don't forget, all Great Women Artists listeners will receive 10% discount on all magical Alighieri jewellery with the code T. GWA at checkout. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the leading art historian, William J. Simmons, a curator, writer and poet based between Los Angeles and New York. Simmons has a degree in art history and LGBTQ studies from Harvard. The author of Queer Formalism, The Return, released earlier this year in March, Simmons is currently working on his next book of essays, Love and Degradation. Published extensively in international journals, magazines and monographs, major monographic contributions include on artists such as Laurie Simmons, Judy Chicago, Toyin Oji Odotola, to name but a few. And Simmons has lectured widely across America. He is a contributing editor at Flash Art and he was the curator of special projects for the 2020 Felix Art Fair in Los Angeles. But the reason why we are speaking with William J. Simmons today is because he is also an expert on the Pictures Generation, a group of American artists who came of age in the early 1970s, known for their critical analysis of media culture, one of whom includes the great Cindy Sherman. Sherman, who today rarely gives interviews as she has said that it is not her place to speak about her work, is known for redefining portraiture with her performative works in which she produces 
stars and directs. Transforming herself into unsettlingly convincing identities, evocative of Hitchcock films, horror movies, clowns, housewives, supermodels or valley girls, Sherman's work so brilliantly holds up a mirror to our complicated and warped society exploring our ever-changing, superficial, abject, aspirational or society-obsessed identities, of which she has said, mark the life that we put on daily. William J. Simmons, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Wow, thank you. I am literally such a fan. This has been in the making for so long. So thank you. I'm doing great and I'm ready to like have the discourse. Let's do it. So firstly, thank you so much for coming on. It's such an honor to speak with you. I have wanted to speak about Cindy Sherman on the podcast for so long because to me, she is firstly one of the greatest artists of the 20th and 21st centuries, but also because she tells us something about our society that is so real, so deep, so unnervingly accurate and familiar. She once said, through a photograph, you can make people believe anything. And that's what she does. We do not know if her pictures are based on real life or real emotions, the movies or in history. She brings to life imagined scenarios and teaches us how especially women have been perceived and make us question the context in which her character exists. So I want to start by asking you, how do you feel when you are confronted by the work of Cindy Sherman? It's hard to find words for it. I mean, all of us who are imbued in art and art history, it's almost like we feel like we know her because we've seen the work since, you know, day one of learning about art, learning about art history. But of course, we don't know her, you know, in the sense of knowing something true about her as an artist. And We also don't know all of her work either, because in preparing for this, you know, I went through some of the monographs of her work. And as usual, I'm always surprised by finding something totally new that I'm obsessed with. And uh, I surmise it's the same for you. I had been meaning to ask you by way of jumping into the topic and sort of how you know, we feel in front of Cindy. In in our email exchange leading up to this, you had mentioned that the society portraits were your faves. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you why and what your thoughts on them were because they're controversial. Oh my gosh, I'm intrigued as to their controversy. I think there was a lot of discussion about them feeling unkind or sardonic or cruel in some way, which of course we wouldn't say about a male artist. But I always thought they were really cool too. So I wanted to hear your take. I think it's so interesting what what you say about the unkindness. Because I mean, to me, you know, Cindy Sherman, I mean, who is also the spectator in Cindy Sherman's work? I mean, in a way, I always think this gaze is coming from this very particular kind of male gaze. And actually what happens in this work is this, is this what women have had to come to in this society? This kind of artificial obsessed makeup obsessed, beauty obsessed. And what I love about them is the fact that, I mean, first of all, their scale, when you see them in real life, they are blown up and they are sort of in these gilded frames. It's a bit like watching Succession, in a way. <laughs> yes. They feel like the kind of people who are aspirational and have it all and this American dream and the whole world is supposed to buy into this American dream yet there is so much wrong with it I mean you look at the woman in the blue dress and suddenly she's wearing these sort of strange dolly shoes her tights are strange I mean she's got these weird nails her face is completely fake the background's fake everything that you're meant to believe and this this idea of aspiring to in life and also they're at this certain age it's like you know when you get to a certain age do you have to be this person and actually She's telling us that we don't actually want to live like this. It's the pressure for so many women in Western society as well. 
But I mean, do you remember when you first discovered her work and your initial thoughts? I do. You know, it was kind of a formative moment. I grew up in a pretty conservative household in Northern California, just outside of Sacramento, which is essentially Trump country. And, you know, I went away to school when I was 18. And I found myself in an introductory modern art class. The professor showed Untitled Number 6, which is the one where she's you know, she's in a bra and panties and she's holding the camera shutter and she's on a bed. And I remember being really blown away by the fact that she was holding the camera shutter and that somebody had to tell me that. And once I knew that, I was like, whoa, this is really interesting. And I think for a lot of people, that is one thing that draws them into Cindy Sherman. This really meticulous attention to detail that I think sort of gets marginalized in the discourse a bit. Those photographs have intentional elements that either confirm its reality or reject it as real or as an artifact or or somewhere in between. Yeah. I mean, the untitled film stills are so brilliant in the sense that they look like something that you've already seen, but then they're totally not. And I love the fact that you bring in this idea that you can actually see the camera shutter because I often don't really think about that. And it is those kind of details that suddenly you realize that it's all fake as well. Yeah. And that the characters that she's portraying, that they aren't just passive entities, you know, that they have agency, certainly in the sense of a feminist critique of photography, but also in the sense that her characters exist separately from what we say about them, that they have their own life, that they control the image in some sense, because I think Cindy is a paradigmatic example of someone whose work critics and historians has caused to almost fade into the background in favor of discourse, right? So there's so much writing on Cindy's work that we almost forget to return to the works themselves. And I think when you remember the degree to which these characters from the women in untitled film stills to the society pictures who we might see as disempowered in some way, we remember through these details that the stories and the worlds and the images that she's creating are not transparent to any one person who's looking at them. Yeah. And I love this idea that she captures these figures in the middle of the sort of most heightened moment of a scene as well. And the fact that she also herself is so unrecognizable in each and every single one of them. I mean, she is almost a kind of like a performance artist. She's not a photographer. She's an artist who works with photography, but also a great storyteller. I mean, how do you think she's expanded our notion of storytelling in art? That's a great question because it opens up a can of worms, as with all things with Cindy. And I should say, because I think it's a funny story. In college, I was chastised by a very prominent feminist curator, who shall go on, (laughs) for calling an artist by his first name, as if I knew him. I just do it because Cindy, it's so, you know, it makes sense. But also even plays into this idea of like a Cindy doll. Oh, totally. And so she is this sort of entity. But also, I think that that we also don't need to necessarily have such a, a strict separation. I mean, you know, one of the things that I always try to tell my undergrads, 
And I think Cindy's work is really useful in this regard, is I tell them that they should always feel free to, I don't know, write an email to Barbara Kruger or write an email to whoever is the director of MOCA at any given moment. That they should feel like they don't need to supplicate themselves to these figures. And I think that's another thing that's really important to Cindy's work is that she sees elements of history as something that she can use and something that she can integrate into her work. I only just learned this, but the history portraits she did while she was in Italy, she didn't see any of the works. Oh, wow. She looked at them in books. She was like, oh, I'm interested in this thing and I'm going to use it. And she wanted to be able to remove herself from it to some degree by not seeing it. But I think it just also connects to something that great artists do, which is showing us how to take elements of culture that we could and should be interrogating and incorporate them into our work. But to answer your question about storytelling, I think that's a great point because the discussion around Cindy's work from the outset has been, there is no story. You know, in in Rosalind Krauss's writing, her sort of formative monograph on Cindy's work, she recounts a story of a critic saying that he could see the movie that, that Cindy was referencing in any given film still. And of course, Rosalind Krauss was like, wow, what an idiot. You know, there is no film. These don't refer to any specific films. And I... I think in one sense it's true, but it also is elitist, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because it's like, oh, how kitschy someone thinks this comes from the Maltese Falcon or Double Indemnity or whatever. But the reason I mention that is because I think she requires us to imagine that there is no film, right? That she is she's performing an image, to call back to what you said in terms of her being a performance artist. But also there is a film, there is a story, there is a narrative because Cindy Sherman is a person who has watched films and we are viewers who have seen films. You know, maybe it's not a specific film, it's maybe an amalgam of films or even moving beyond the film stills, you know, it's a fairy tale or it's an art collector we met at a dinner. I mean, I don't know, maybe we know a clown, (laughs) but even more than that, I think what's at issue is that these photographs, no matter their subject matter, evoke some kind of identification or disidentification. We might be repulsed by somebody in the fairy tales or the sex pictures or what have you, or we might see some of the women in the untitled film stills and say, oh, she's so disempowered and menaced by some man outside of the frame. But we might also see something like, oh yes, this generates a certain kind of pathos within me. A lot of her work, like her uh, rear screen projections, are extremely glamorous. And it's not wrong or retrograde to be like, I wish I was that chic woman going someplace to fuck some hot dude, you know, I think that's cool. And to tell yourself that story, or we might want to be that aging 
heiress who some people might find comical, we might find some sort of empathetic connection to, or, you know, someone might look at those society pictures and be like, oh, wow, that's me in my villa, you know? (laughs) Oh God, I feel terrible now. (laughs) (laughs) And that's cool. And that's interesting. And I think that that we maybe need to be careful about empathy because empathy has an interesting relationship, of course, to women artists, certainly. Empathy is not necessarily the same as finding a story within something, nor is identification the same as those things. You know, you might find an interesting story in one of these photographs, but not necessarily find anything to identify with. And you may not be empathetic. And more importantly, at the end of the day, we can't expect Cindy to be empathetic because, you know, it's none of our business, her relationship to these subjects necessarily. But that long answer is to say that her work is not about stories, but it also is about stories because that academic desire to sort of evacuate her work of narrative is elitist, but it also disallows for identifying with these figures or at least finding some sort of interesting story in them. You can imagine a story within them. You could write a poem about it. You could make a movie, what have you. You know, I think disallowing that narrative element does a huge disservice. Yes, absolutely. And you put it in such a good way. And perhaps I have only ever seen one side of it, but also it's so vital to look at her work in every sense. Because at the end of the day, these people exist and they're real. And just looking at the society portraits right now, you know, part of me is a bit sad because of the pressures that society makes people be, look and act in a certain way. And at the end of the day, we are also in this multifaceted society. And it is these differences that make the world exciting. But also remember that just because someone looks a certain way or appears to be someone doesn't draw away from the fact that they too have a body underneath, just like us, just like Cindy Sherman. We also have to keep in mind that she's done a lot of figures who are not quote unquote real in the sense of like trolls and crazy sex dolls and and what have you. (laughs) So like empathy and identification are important, but we also have to remember that another form of story or narrative is fantasy. Yeah. And we see, you know, in her fairy tales or her sex pictures or, or even her, her clowns or her triptychs or what have you, that there is this fantasy element. And we can find ourselves within that fantasy in the same way that we could find it in Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or Succession. <laughs> you know, it's, and I think that's important to keep in mind too, that not everything Cindy does is cinema verite. Because Cindy isn't a documentarian, you know, neither is... Laurie Simmons, Louise Lawler, what have you, even though we sort of treat that group of artists as if they were documentarians of a time and place. And at the end of the day, Cindy's work has a lot in common with, say, I don't know, Robert Frank or Lee Friedlander, but their aims are different. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. But I think it's so interesting to think that, you know, this was also the first generation who grew up on TV and they grew up on movies and they grew up with this total artifice in the kind of 50s and 60s where pop culture was kind of raging. And the fact that beginning of advertisements, the beginning of this kind of like idealized American dream, this kind of Americanization that filtered so 
boldly throughout the world. But I mean, you know, coming back to the beginning of Cindy's life, I mean, she was born in New Jersey in 1954. She was the youngest of five children. And really interesting, there was a 19-year gap that separated her elder sibling and her. And when she was three, she moved to Huntington, Long Island. And Long Island was this place of kind of aspiration. I mean, can you tell me about her upbringing? What sort of childhood did she have? The interesting thing is that maybe more so than, than any artists of the of the pictures generation, you know, we want to find some sort of root in her later practice in her childhood, right? So the literature is sort of filled with, you know, sketchbooks and paper dolls and, and self-portraits from a very young age. We We can only psychoanalyze to a degree, but it seems that you know, her family, everyone must have been supportive of of her sort of playing and experimenting. But yeah, it's interesting to think about to what degree we want to find, you know, the roots of her practice in her childhood. Yeah, no, completely. I mean, what I find so fascinating is they showed at the National Portrait Gallery when it was up in London a few years ago. One of the first artworks she ever made was this thing called the Cindy Book which was this family photo album. I think she began making when she was just six years old and it comprised of 26 snapshots and in green ink, she had circled herself in each photo and underneath written, that's me. I mean, they're sort of totally unnerving in a way. And they portray this idea of being on the outside and wanting to sort of be included. And actually comes back to the rest of her work in the sense that obviously in real life, no one is actually ever on the inside. We're all on the outside. And I can probably assume that every single one of us feel like we're on the outside. And, you know, you do feel like you're kind of entering this family. And in a way, I find it fascinating that she does that. She kind of looks at her reality and then almost analyzes that straight away. I had forgotten about that work because it is unnerving. I think it evinces a lot of wisdom. And I think, you know, we probably all have some element of that wisdom when we're when we're younger and we'd be surprised by it in retrospect but maybe we didn't necessarily have the context where we could see it later on and just this idea that you know she also dressed up as a kid but you know unlike her friends who wanted to be princesses or anything she would always be sort of the ugly old witch or the monster or something which I find is kind of fascinating because it's also going completely against what society ingrains in you and I love the fact that even watching these characters on tv she's going against that yeah it's a it's a very queer sensibility in that she's always been thinking along those lines in terms of not necessarily living oppositionally to culture, but rather finding a relationship to culture that is unexpected, but sustaining. You know, it sounded like maybe she was hella punk back in the day when she was a kid and she was like, I want to be the witch, you know? Totally, totally. But then, I mean, in 1972, she enrolled at the visual art department in Buffalo State College. I mean, this was also the 70s. How was photography kind of seen at this time? It was a transitional phase. For the most part, Cindy initially trained in, in painting, as a lot of artists in that generation were, because photography sort of had a um, it had an insecure plane in art history, which is baffling to us now, yeah. because we're all artists in a certain sense with our iPhones and whatnot. But color photography, for instance, was really not accepted as an art form. And it wasn't until folks like Cindy and Laurie Simmons really pioneered that, that it became interesting. Their choice to sort of really throw themselves into photography was really important. 
you know, it, it, for all of those artists, it was, it was a bold choice, but it felt like the medium that most accurately reflected what they were thinking about. Totally. But I mean, I love this idea. I mean, when she was at Buffalo, she credits this woman called Barbara Jo Ravel as the sort of first person to make her sort of aware of conceptualism. And she said it was to have an idea what was what mattered. And that made so much more sense to me. And I think although Cindy is a sort of master at the technicalities of photography and dressing up and sort of stage sets and everything, it's also about the idea behind it. So for example, like one of her earliest works, Untitled 1975, was like this amazing grid of 23 mugshots, like sort of charting her progressive transformation from a drab-looking suburbanite into a glamorous diva. I mean, what do you think Untitled 1975 revealed about what she was even starting to do at that time? That early work is very prescient because you see the roots of Cindy Sherman, you know, capital C, capital S, but you also see a young artist slash student sort of grappling with photoconceptualism, because that work in particular has so much to do with West Coast photoconceptualism, specifically like Baldessari and that sort of seriality. Of course, you would sort of recuperate that seriality, that repetition as a way of investigating stereotypes. Whether or not that was her intention is, is up for debate, but they do accomplish that function, but they also gesture toward you know, what the vanguard art of the 60s and 70s was in terms of, yeah, this photoconceptualist investigation of the grid, of seriality, of a certain kind of humor. No, I mean, it's just fascinating, you know, she sort of goes from this schoolgirl to this diva or whatever. And I just love how, you know, she just becomes completely unrecognizable the whole time. And it's like commenting on this idea that um, how do we kind of change our identity so drastically and what that means? Because when she actually ended up moving to New York in, in 1976, she spoke about how she was treated like walking down the street. And this is also the age of like Adrian Piper, who with her catalysis series, you know, dressed up as a man and actually the differences of how people were treated. I mean, it's kind of like the power of dressing up. And not only does it offer a kind of escapism for people who are doing it, but also those around you change their perception of you. Yeah, absolutely. And to return to that early work, I think it's also important that we keep in mind, you know, as you suggested, aspiration. It's just really fun and melancholic to think about what we were like in college. Yeah. Who we thought we were going to be, and maybe we did become that, and maybe we didn't. But that idea of changing from like a frumpy suburbanite to a glamorous woman and back, yeah. And then back into Cindy. That was sort of what we were all doing in you know our late teens, early twenties. And it's on a very like Disney esque way. I would say, you know, there's also something really interesting about just continuing to center that permission to give ourselves a fantasy life. And I think that's super important. But I love that you brought that up because I think connecting her work to Adrian Piper is really interesting. And it really is kind of mind-blowing. Of course, there were different aims in what they were doing. But in a certain sense, the, the gesture is very similar. Yeah. Well, I just think it's, it's the power of it, isn't it? Because even I think about walking down the street or as a woman, I mean, like, I think it's also the power of like making people around you change 
their perception of you as well. So like the power of dressing up does that, but also the what we do in our acts, the fact that, you know, Adrian Piper stuffs her mouth with a tea towel or something and, and goes on the bus and people almost kind of like want to ignore you. But actually what I guess Cindy's doing is making people look and making people sort of really think harder. But I mean, then in 1977, she began her untitled film stills. I mean, what do you think is the power of the untitled film stills? Again, at a very sort of almost non-academic level, they are so glamorous and they are, they are so chic. And when you see them, they're quite small. They are just like so iconic in part because, you know, we weren't around in the late seventies. And so we didn't see them when they were exhibited, but they do have this like massive presence. But when we see them in person, I think you really understand them as objects rather than like windows into something. There's something so attractive about them, certainly in in a pornographic sense, but also in this sense of identification. But, you know, just being like, who is this woman? Why can't I be her? How do I be her? I think some of my academic colleagues would be mortified, but... You know, it's like Big Little Lies. It's like sharp objects. It's film noir. They're really chic. But they also have this kind of unnervingness about them as well, because you're also kind of struck by them in the sense that you don't quite know where they are and sort of what happened before or after in the sense that there's an element of this kind of real vulnerability to them as well. And although they are so chic and so beautiful on the outside, you actually kind of look at what they're doing and they look isolated. The woman who's looking at herself in the mirror is obviously so on the surface beautiful, but then you really think about what has this, like, this sort of patriarchal society done to make her feel that she's so obsessed with herself. I mean, it's almost a kind of like double-edged sword in the sense that they are so beautiful, but then at the same time, also the fact that she did so well out of them. I mean, it really launched her as well. I mean, it's just, it's kind of ironic as well, the fact that they're about the innerless of the woman as well. I think that's absolutely spot on because the flip side of this, as you're suggesting, is that these images just really tap into that cultural obsession with images of endangered women, they say something about a Western obsession with women who are being menaced. And particularly in in the kinds of films that, that she's drawing upon. Yeah, it's like in addition to this sinister element, we have this really attractive element. And then it really shows that There is something just so ingrained in culture, especially the culture of photography and film that is really centered on the abuse of women. Yeah, I mean, completely. The fact that she is so beautiful, yet there is this almost sort of desire for her to be caught in the rain or caught sort of being trapped or something. But I find it so fascinating. I mean, and then afterwards, she made her centerfolds uh, in 1981, which are actually these much larger scale format works inspired by center spreads and fashion magazines. And again, I mean, you know, she really gets at the kind of deep psychology of these women and how they actually are portrayed. I mean, what what are your thoughts on the centerfold works as well? Well, I think, you know, in addition to gesturing toward fashion, they were absolutely understood at the time as gesturing toward pornography. Yeah. They were commissioned by Art Forum and the literature gestures toward that, that there was a fear that they would be misunderstood 
as in some way gesturing toward rape or sexual abuse. And so they weren't published. And, you know, it introduces a whole new history to Cindy's work in terms of a history of censorship, you know, like Maplethorpe, Judy Chicago, Sally Mann, because the history of censorship, specifically of art of the 80s, is dominated by cisgender gay men, by which I largely mean Robert Maplethorpe. And so it's interesting to keep that in mind. But, you know, also gestures, again, toward this really sort of heavy element of the work that some people have seen in it that maybe a male-bodied person might not look at the centerfolds and be like, oh, there's like some sort of sexual abuse happening. And maybe if a femme-identified person or what have you might see that. And that's the first thing that jumps to mind. And it feels like a situation that maybe wouldn't happen now or, or would happen in a different way. And... Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really instructive little blip in the in the history of her work because, of course, those works became so iconic. And there, there is this address to the viewer in those works that can imply a kind of violence. I mean, for me, when I first see them, I'm just struck by the sort of vulnerability of these women or, you know, the fact that there is something happening in the scene that we can't see. And yes, it's sort of pornographic, but I guess for me, I totally see this idea that this kind of endangeredness as well. And the fact that, I I don't know, it's like these almost schoolgirl, like they're being targeted somehow. And she really makes you sort of tense up in your body when you look at them in the sense that there is this such fearful element in this. And I think what the power of Cindy Sherman's work is to do as well is just to have this kind of deep-rooted sort of psychological effect in it as well. And sort of what has society done to these women or something? As far as I know, like Cindy didn't identify with the reading of these women as being endangered in some way but i think that of course you know those images will have that effect on some people and that's entirely valid but i think it's also important to remember that we project it's almost like a patriarchal projection of a desire to violence onto the image and maybe that's not always the case yeah, no, totally. I mean, you, you make an excellent case for it. I mean, it's sort of terrible that my kind of trained brain is immediately <laughs> going to certain places, which shouldn't really be the case. But what I find so amazing about Cindy Sherman is the fact that she's just constantly reinventing the wheel. So, for example, in the mid-1980s, she began her fairy tales and disaster series, which was also to challenge the market, dare people to hang something so abject above their fireplace and also sort of taking the piss out of the male-dominated neo-expressionist painters at the time. But this series looked at how people have been portrayed in horror movies and that kind of artifice around them again. I mean, what do you think it is about this series that is so significant? I mean, they're... I still think they're kind of glamorous. I mean, trolls, they're hot. <laughs> Wizards, hot. But yeah, I mean, when I first saw these works, it was it was mind-blowing because, you know, these along with the sex pictures and the disaster pictures, it's sort of like you see her removing herself from the work. And I think all of us, artists of all kinds, have that sort of feeling. These moments when we feel like we can't be in our work anymore or in our bodies or in our geographical setting or what have you, you know, sort of a desire to, a desire to be a different person, which I think at its core 
is an important element of, of Cindy's work, but yeah, they're totally amazing. And this is something I talk about in my essay about Cindy's work for um, Flash Art. I start with a quote from David Jocelyn, and he said, you know, I love Cindy's work because she's not afraid to be ugly. And, you know, I took issue with that one from like a gay man talking about Cindy and whether or not she's ugly, but also if this is her ugliest work, you know, this and the sex pictures uh, and the disasters, you know, I still think there's an element of them that's really beautiful in the sense of just looking again at the detail and just like how she thought of these things. From a, a craft perspective, you know, there's a whole craft element of photography, but also like a storytelling perspective. How did she manage to come up with this image it's really kind of mind-blowing because, you know, we can't necessarily think of, of Cindy as some sort of autobiographer because she's able to come up with these fictional spaces that are really mind-blowing. Yeah. But I mean, what is her process? Because am I right in thinking that she kind of always works alone as well? She doesn't let anyone in the studio. And this is also her first series where she also started using prosthetics and all these different kind of materials and everything. I mean, do you know about the process of these works? What I do know is that you know, her sort of collection of props and prosthetics and whatnot is uh, enviable. She's taken everything from the studio and they're in there and they sort of all come together into this like really affecting mess. It's like a Pollock. You and I could go to Party City and get all the stuff and we wouldn't be able to recreate that. What we would create would have its own intrinsic value, but it wouldn't look like a Cindy Sherman. And I think that's really interesting. Totally, totally. I mean, she is just such a, a visionary in terms of even just setting up a scene. I mean, you know, then she would go on to make her history portraits in 1989. And it's so interesting what you said earlier about how she didn't even look at any of these works beforehand, but actually went in there and made her own versions. And in a way, I find that fascinating because it's almost like our idea of something, you know, when we think of like a history portrait in our head, it's never a sort of whole image, which is also quite interesting why the prosthetics are so visible. And, and in a way, you know, almost taking the piss out of these images from the olden days because they were so obsessed with looking a certain way. And, you know, when you look at, I don't know, Elizabeth I's portraits, I mean, they are the one that kind of really get me in the sense that she's so kind of white and pale and her lips are almost just drawn on. I mean, you almost got to think there is this amazing correlation between a Cindy Sherman portrait and the kind of reality of the history portrait because both were sort of trying to make something that is beautiful, but in sort of such a kind of grotesque, abject way. Yeah. And, you know, we might say that Cindy's work is grotesque, but as you're suggesting, like so much art is grotesque already, especially those history portraits where it's so inhuman, so over the top. It's almost like she's drawing out like a certain cringe quality that's already there. And also her work in that series, it also has something to do with traveling to a new place and feeling like a, a really pressing urgency to like take in all the culture and to see everything. And instead just choosing to see what she wanted to see, do what she wanted to do and make her work. But I mean, then, you know, what I find so fascinating now is this idea that she's actually using you know, Instagram, and she's really speaking to the present day. I mean, how do you think that she has constantly kind of reinvented herself to really speak to the time in which these series were made? In a certain sense, 
it's multifaceted. I think on one hand, she certainly does always have her finger on the pulse, but I think on the other, I think she always kind of does what she wants to do. And I think that's almost cooler. And I think that her use of Instagram was less of a conceptual gesture than the fact that she was just using Instagram. As I recall, she had an Instagram that had a different name. And then at a certain point, she changed it. And she did a similar thing that she does now, you know, sort of face-tuned pictures, but also pictures of other things. And then I think what happened was she changed the name to at Cindy Sherman and it got verified. And then all of a sudden it was like, I have to have an opinion on Cindy Sherman's selfies. A critic wrote a quite polemical article about it being like, I just don't think these have the same rigor as her other work, blah, blah, blah. And I was just, you know, comparing the untitled film stills to her Instagram in a certain sense is apples and oranges. But also the point is that she was just using Instagram. I do think it was problematic that it was like, oh, you know, this is Cindy's art now and we have to have an opinion about it. I don't know. It just feel, it felt really lame to me. Like, I don't like Cindy Sherman's Instagram photos. Like, oh, cool. <laughs> you know? <laughs> anyway, she can do whatever she wants. <laughs> yeah, she can. And what do you think her work has taught you? I think it's really taught me to try to follow what I love. She's interested in what she's interested in. She loves what she loves. And she has problems with what she has problems with. And she has a way of engaging with them that helps her exist in a meaningful way in the world. And I want to do that. And I want to figure out a way to do that in my work so that other people feel emboldened to do the same thing. Because I think even now, especially for women and especially for queer people and especially for people of color and combinations of all of the above, there is still this sense that you can only like certain things if you have a certain identity or you should have an opinion about certain things because you have a certain identity. Or if you're not a cisgender white man, you have to hate all culture or go to every movie ready to say, well, you know, this is problematic, this is problematic. And of course, you know, you need to do that. But there are elements where as a marginalized person of, of any kind, you have to find space to allow yourself to engage in unexpected ways with culture. Like, you know, they can be both critical and complicit and your love for pop culture, no matter how you choose to identify and, and whatever you choose to identify with is worthy of pursuing, thinking deeply about and sharing with other people. Absolutely. Well, William J. Simmons, thank you so much for this fantastic insight into Cindy Sherman. Oh, thank you. And as is the Great Women Artist podcast, we do always ask our guests. I know that you have met Cindy. So if you could ask her anything, perhaps from a different time in her life, would there be anything that you would ask her or say to her? Ooh, that is a hard question. I would want to know if she feels understood. I would be yeah. really interested to know that because artists we like, I think 
feel vulnerable and they feel excluded, as you suggested at the very top of the podcast. And I want to know if she, if, she, if she feels understood. I would be really interested to know that. That's such a brilliant question and such a brilliant question for so many artists as well. William J. Simmons, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, it's such an honour. Thank you all so much for listening to the 76th episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant William J. Simmons on Cindy Sherman. It was so fascinating to explore the life and work of Sherman with William J. Simmons and what an incredible insight he gave us into her fantastic work. As always, I have linked to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardes Menenich and research assistant was Viva Ruji. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I will be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 